from high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Justin Higginbottom, filling in for Molly Marcello. This is your news for Friday, July 1st. The recent flooding around Yellowstone National Park also created challenges for gateway towns like Gardner, Red Lodge, and Cook City in Montana. That includes lost homes and possibly lost livelihoods. For travelers who can no longer access the park through those towns, there's another Montana entrance, West Yellowstone, the most popular gateway to the park. Mountain West News Bureau reporter Madeline Beck was there in late June. Coming into town, there are big electronic signs that let people know cars with license plates ending in even numbers can come into Yellowstone on even days. Odd numbers on odd days. That's to control the flow of visitors as the park makes repairs in northern areas. Utah resident Nicole Willoughby was visiting with relatives from Missouri and California. They got lucky enough to get into the park, even if a big part of it is still closed. So it was my mom's birthday yesterday, and luckily my license plate ends in a seven, so I could go yesterday. Were you guys planning this trip for a long time? Uh, for, I think since like January, so it was kind of, kind of a bummer, but it's okay. Bob Jacklin owns Jacklin's Outfitters downtown. He's been a fishing guide around West Yellowstone for more than 50 years, and he's never seen flood enclosures like this. The park shut down for several days, and only the southern section has reopened. The park means everything to this town, like the other community towns. So the minute the park opens, we're open. The minute it closes, we're closed. That's how it works. While the park closure was unprecedented, Jacklin says West Yellowstone didn't face much flooding, just regular high water. At the same time, some hotels had significant cancellations. Travis Watt is general manager of Three Bear Lodge. He had just gotten off a call with Yellowstone Park Superintendent Cameron Shawley. And Watt says that the total number of visitors coming into the park now is about half what it was last year. We look forward to the upper loop getting open here in a couple weeks. That'll help a lot. But right now reservations are down substantially. I think there's a small uptick in the last couple of days. We've seen that and some other folks have indicated that as well. Watt estimates that when the park closed, his lodge had about 30 or 40 percent of the usual occupancy. By early July, it's up to nearly 75 percent. Kelly McCauley owns the Timberline Cafe just down the street. The park closure reduced the number of customers and it was stressful, but she directed tourists to other nearby attractions like Quake Lake. We have a little map over there and we showed them all the surrounding areas, Idaho and Wyoming, places that they could go that was outside the park, keep busy. While the park closure and new rules have affected these businesses, everyone acknowledges others had it much worse, like Gardner, Red Lodge and Cook City. I asked residents what it would have been like if West Yellowstone had faced the same fate of washed out bridges and a closed park entrance. Complete devastation. It just ruined it. It just closed the town up. We would be closed for probably the rest of the summer. Still, some in town had quite a bit of business following the short park closure. Jeanette Therian is a clerk at the Yellowstone Park Village gift shop. We had all these people and they didn't know what to do. And so what do people do when they don't know what to do? They go shopping. Some days might not have had the same number of shoppers as before, but she says they stayed pretty busy. Overall, West Yellowstone residents say they were lucky, but there could always be earthquakes or wildfires to knock them back down again. Therian put it this way. I just wish that it would bring more people to the awareness of we're not in control. 
Out in the grass beside Yellowstone Avenue, Cheyenne, Wyoming resident Chua Lopez practiced a tune for a wedding happening there the following day. A wedding that might not have been possible if the town had faced the same damages as others in Montana. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Madeline Beck. The Great Salt Lake is drying up, leaving large swaths of lake bed uncovered. That dirt contains toxins that can become airborne, posing a health and environmental problem. Max McDermott has more on those impacts. USU Associate Professor of Watershed Sciences Janice Brainy has been studying the Great Salt Lake dust since 2017. I think we reached a really significant low point in the lake's uh, perimeter, exposing about 50% of the um, lake bed area. So I think at that point there was rising concern about what was happening with the lake. And so I started shortly thereafter trying to understand what the implications might be with the dust coming off the lake bed. Great Salt Lake is a terminal basin, meaning whatever flows into it stays there. The chemicals of decades of industry accumulate are stored in the dirt and held in by an airtight lid of water. But what happens when that lid evaporates? There are many other desiccating salt lakes around the world that are also terminal basins and also capturing a lot of toxins from their watershed. But the Great Salt Lake is the only one that has a major urban center in the watershed. So that not only contributes a lot of pollutants and toxins into the basin, but also means that those people are then exposed to the dust when it does get emitted. Brainy and her team are measuring the amount of heavy metals, organic compounds, and cyanotoxins contained in the newly uncovered dirt. Brainy says that for now, the hard surface crust of the lake bed is largely keeping the dust in. But as that protective crust erodes, the toxic dust can be picked up by the wind and carried far and wide. The flatness of the basin shape means that one foot and drop in the water level can expose a vast area. If the lake was much deeper, if it had a you know, steep sides, one foot might not expose that much playa. But because of how shallow it is, you know, it doesn't take very much of a loss of water to expose a lot of playa. And I think that is what has become more extreme in recent years. That was Max McDermott from our partners at Utah Public Radio. Our region's long drought is putting pressure on drinking water supplies. Add in a water main break and the situation can be catastrophic. Caitlin Tan reports for the Mountain West News Bureau on one area that's already under water restrictions. This spring, many residents of Rollins and Sinclair in southern Wyoming turned on their faucets only to find no water. School was canceled, businesses closed, and at the local hospital, workers hauled buckets of water up several flights to flush toilets for patients. Officials chalked it up to a break in the water line, coming on top of the drought. We're about half of the flows daily that we normally receive. So some of that could be that the leaks have gotten worse, but I'm inclined to believe that it's also drought-driven. That's Myra Miller with the city of Rollins. She says last summer the city noticed the water flow was low. It was failing even faster than we had expected. It had been on staff's radar before that, that we needed to look at it, but some major leakages must have sprung up 
The city found that much of the pipeline was corroded. There were leaks, faulty blow-off valves, and some of the original piping was made of wood. I believe it's like 105 years old. We have like seven miles worth of it left. Um, and that's what we're replacing now. Stevie Osborne is the water treatment plant operator. She says the spring that is the city's main source of water used to produce so much water that you could hear it rushing into their system. Well, that's not the case now. <laughs> right now because we're not getting that snowpack that we used to. So instead of rushing water, it's now more like a slow-moving stream. Federal data from the National Water and Climate Center shows that Rollins had less than 70% of typical snow levels this past winter. And forecasts show above average heat this summer. Now, the city has imposed water restrictions, like only watering lawns once a week. It also has a $20 million plan to improve its water infrastructure, like building snow fences near the springs to collect more snow melt, but also making the system less reliant on the springs. Miller says it's a wake-up call for our region. I think a lot of towns like us might not have been able to see the water infrastructure problems. The American Society of Civil Engineers says the nation's drinking water systems are aging and underfunded. A study last year found that there's a water main break every two minutes, and the amount of treated water lost each day could fill more than 9,000 swimming pools. And it's really hard to get the focus that we need on fixing the problem because People aren't interested in it until they're at a point of crisis. That's engineering professor David Sedlak of the University of California at Berkeley. He says much of the West is undergoing aridization, an increasing trend of drying. All of these Western parts of the country are running into this problem of the water supply shrinking and in many cases, the demand continuing to grow. Sedlak expects that to become more common. But towns can address these issues by diversifying their water sources, like treating and cleaning sewage so it can be returned to the drinking water aquifer or sent to a reservoir. And by recycling our wastewater, we can essentially expand our water supply by close to 50 percent. Back in Rollins, Westside Car Wash and laundry owner Hans Pedersen worries about the local water restrictions, which caused him to shut down his business for a week in March. Water shortages have already taken a toll on his business. Revenue dropped by a third in March. Even though the toughest restrictions have been lifted, he worries people will think twice about getting a car wash. I really hope I can keep my business open and afford to make my payments because to put that kind of time and effort into something and lose it over something like this, it's really hard to take. Patterson says tougher water restrictions could put him out of business. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Caitlin Tan. And now the weekly newsreel where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. The country is still taking in the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade. Every community has felt the impact of the end to constitutional protections for abortions. Some celebrated and some mourned. States around the country will dramatically decrease access to abortion. That includes Utah. 
Reporter Sophia Fisher with the Times Independent talks about a front page story her paper ran documenting local and state officials' opinions on that opinion. Our big banner story is the same one that's been kind of rocking the country um, over the past week, you know, the the reversal of uh, Roe versus Wade by the United States Supreme Court last Friday. And uh, my editor, Doug McMurdo, immediately reached out to a handful of local and state officials. Uh, locally, that was Grand County Attorney Christina Sloan, um, Moab Mayor Pro Tem Tawny Newton Boyd, um, as well as Grand County Commissioner Trish Hadeen to hear their reactions to and opinions about um, Roe versus Wade. And, and locally, the opinions were, were very negative. People were, were very concerned um, about the reversal of this previous law. Um, he also, Doug also wrote about um, two different abortion-related laws in Utah, one of which is currently in effect, the other of which was briefly in effect and then was granted a restraining order by a judge. So it's actually not in effect for the next week and a half. But, you know, a little bit of background research about what is this going to mean locally um, for folks. You're talking about the trigger law that Utah has where they're sort of waiting for the Supreme Court decision to uh, make most abortions in the state illegal. Exactly. So there was this trigger law called um, Senate Bill 174 passed two years ago, and that's a very restrictive rule that prohibits all elective abortions in Utah, um, except in rare cases of rape, incest, or medical emergency. That briefly came into effect, but actually Planned Parenthood this past week asked a judge to grant a restraining order on that law, which temporarily suspends it, um, and they could potentially seek also a further injunction. Um, But that law right now is not in effect, and I think they're reviewing it in a, a week, week and a half, so it's it's pretty quick right now, the, the restraining order that could change quickly. But another law is currently in effect, and that was known as House Bill 136 that was passed in 2019. That is less restrictive. It bans abortion only after 18 weeks. Um, and that obviously did not come into effect until Roe was overturned last week. Yeah, I like how Doug got kind of different voices on this issue because as we know, Grand County, our our kind of local island is a bit more progressive um, compared to the rest of the state. So looks like you have Mike Lee's opinion here, but also, yeah, some local politicians who um, are very much against this decision by the Supreme Court. Exactly. It was quite telling that um, I think all of the state opinions that he referenced were uh, in favor of the overturning of Roe versus Wade and all of the local opinions that he got were against the overturning. So definitely kind of shows this dichotomy between um, state and local politics yet again. So Moab's a a border community. We're right next to Colorado, Mm -hmm. where I imagine abortion rights will stay. It'll stay legal for most abortions there. Do you expect any sort of help with transportation or kind of cross-border movement by people in our area? It wasn't part of our reporting this week, but just personally, I'd imagine that people locally who who want or, or need to get an abortion um, are going to travel across state lines to Colorado. I know that there's a clinic that provides abortions in Durango, not too far away. Um, and I could imagine there being a community fund set up to help people with transit costs, but that could that would be a really interesting future story for sure. Awesome. What, what's next? What's another story? Yeah, a little more lighthearted. Um, Scots on the Rocks is going to occur in Moab after originally its permit was denied by city council back in April. So why was its permit denied originally? Was it the noise, I imagine? It was noise. Yeah. So it was held, I think, for the first time in the Center Street ball fields last year. And following that, a couple of local residents complained to city council about noise, specifically uh, bagpipes and drums, which I think are a big part of the festival. Um, So it had been denied 3-2, but 
after that denial, there was a vast amount of community support that came out. Somebody, some um, online petition gathered like 1,600 signatures from people in favor of having the event um, back at the ball fields. And city council reversed its decision on Tuesday, approving the event 5 nothing. Yeah, I mean, it's a popular event. I, I live right next to where they had it over the summer. And that was one of my kind of first experiences in Moab, which was loud, but also really cool. Totally. And I think some some um, defenders talked about the diversity that it brings to Moab, you know, celebrating certain cultures, which I think is, is a really cool point and uh, very cool to see it come back. Scottish diversity counts. Anything else you'd want to mention on that story? No, I mean, I think I think some of the comments folks made, if you flip to A4, you know, the jump of the story, some of the comments are, are pretty cool if readers want to check those out. I think some very uh, thoughtful comments from local residents. So that was really heartening for me to see. Do, do you have a favorite? Oh, I think there was a, a final, the final comment in the story was from um, a local resident who was talking about how he can hear kids laughing at the ball fields and hitting home runs and, um, you know, doesn't mind some of the noise that can come from this if it represents cultural excitement and, and diversity and joy, which I really appreciated. Well, that's, that's great. So we can expect a lot of Scottish loud joy for this, for this event. Heck yeah. Awesome. What's, what's next? Yeah, I think another uh, big story is about roadwork projects that are either coming to Moab or already in place in Moab uh, this summer, led by UDOT, the Utah Department of Transportation. Um, there's going to be a lot of work done on what, Highway 191. Um, as folks have probably already seen, they're doing some repaving and rehabilitation of the highway uh, between the entrance to Arches National Park and the intersection with Highway 313. So that's looking a lot better. And then starting in July, there are going to be two more projects, one of which will be um, a nighttime resurfacing of Highway 191 south of Moab, um, actually from 300 south to LaSalle Junction. So that will be, I think, entirely nighttime work, but they, I think it sounds like they will be at points closing some lanes at night and doing the like alternating one-way traffic flows. And then the third project will be adding a southbound passing lane on Highway 191. Yay. We need more of those. Yes, we do. <laughs> So that'll be just south of Crescent Junction. So when you're getting on the highway after getting off 70, instead of getting stuck behind a semi for like eight miles or whatever it is, you will be able to pass them starting in, I believe, November is when the project will be completed. What was it two years ago? Maybe there was a lot of construction on Moab roads, which turned traffic in this area into a nightmare. Oh, I do remember that. Um, are you talking about the widening project? Yes, the widening. And that was, uh, yeah. Um, got stuck on traffic for like two hours several times. Is there any concern that you know of, of traffic impacts by these projects? Not that I heard. Um, the representative of UDOT said that lane closures for all the projects will, I think, almost entirely occur at night, which is defined as 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Um, so during those times, especially, you know, like from 7 to 8 p.m. when it's still like maybe fairly crowded, there could be some traffic impacts. But overall, the impacts seem to be expected to be quite low, maybe 10 to 15 minutes maximum. Um, but definitely keep an eye out, especially if it's late at night, you're speeding along the highway that, you know, you may have to do some alternating one way traffic flows at times on the highway. Yeah, that's helpful. They should do all construction at night. I guess noise is an issue. And because this is a highway sort of out of town, they're able to work on it at night. And frankly, if yeah, and if they're starting it in July, I mean, can you even do that work during the day? It sounds like you get a lot of heat exhaustion. So yeah. hopefully better for the crews as well. Excellent. What What next? What else do you want to talk about? There is a COVID story, um, nothing 
super different there. I mean, as folks may know already, uh, the county has been kind of wobbling between high and medium COVID status. Um, and it is important to note, you know, as of this this recording, we are still in high, although according to metrics that I've gotten from the health department, we should be at medium right now. It seems like there might be a bit of a lag when the CDC um, updates its transmission levels. But when we are at high, it is recommended to wear masks in indoor public spaces. So, you know, keep an eye on that. You know, make sure you quarantine and isolate if you're if you're symptomatic or have been exposed and are just taking the necessary safety precautions. And, and please get vaxxed if you haven't already. <laughs> yeah, and I guess this is a good time to bring up. I'm filling in for Molly this week because she has COVID. But yeah, so she's at home resting up and getting better. So... Um, Yeah, it seems to be spreading around town. And then just finally some teasers. We have a few new members of local government bodies. We have a new um, officer at the Moab Police Department, Moab native Nathan Tui. And then Grand County also hired a new planning director internally to replace John Gunther. And they hired Elisa Martin, who had formerly been the associate planner. So uh, pick up a copy of the paper this week if you want to read more about these uh, two awesome people. Yeah, so you wrote your first opinion piece here, Sophia. Can you tell us what your opinionated about? Sure. <laughs> Roe versus Wade, uh, perhaps not as a surprise. So oddly enough, I was actually in uh, in D.C. last week in, in front of the Lincoln Memorial um, when I learned the news. So I just wrote a little bit about that poignant experience and being in our nation's capital among all these vast monuments when I personally feel like my rights had just gotten eroded as a citizen. Um, so, you know, a little personal promotion that's on A7 in this week's issue. I do yeah. want to say it's it's great that you all took this national issue and, and put as much of a local spin on it, or at least, you know, advertise as many local voices as you could, including your own. That's that's very helpful, I think. Totally. And I look forward to hopefully having a lot more local reporting on this. It's one of those vast issues that will absolutely boil down into local people's personal lives. So yeah. totally warrants it. Okay. Thank you so much, Sophia. Yeah, thank you. Sophia Fisher, staff writer at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. With so many workers in Moab desperate for housing, some may forget that they have rights when it comes to where they live. Fair housing laws protect tenants from discrimination based off things like race. Ali Harford, staff writer at the Moab Sun News, speaks with me about an educational effort to teach residents their rights. Grand County Local Homelessness Council recently received a training from the Utah Labor Commission on fair housing laws and how they apply to situations locally. And so Rachel wrote this article just kind of summarizing the training that the Local Homelessness Council received and also pointing out some of the laws um, that are really applicable in Moab. Excellent. And what are some of those laws that apply to people in Moab? The most interesting ones kind of revolve around the Fair Housing Act, both the federal one and Utah's fair housing laws. And so these are laws that are intended to address like racial discrimination in housing and also discrimination based on income and sexual orientation and gender identity. So fair housing laws do not apply to short-term rentals or or hotels unless they're being used as long-term residences. Yeah, which is really interesting to me. And then they also don't apply to a homeowner who's renting out a portion of their home as long as the owner is not a business entity or rents out no more than four units. Homeowners are also exempt if they haven't sold two or more dwellings in which they aren't living. And so this is kind of the most relevant thing to Moab because a lot of homeowners around here are renting out just one room, but the fair housing laws wouldn't apply to them. 
and someone that has like an Airbnb, um, fair housing laws don't apply to someone renting. Right, that exactly. Yeah, it wouldn't apply to Airbnb. That's that's very interesting and certainly applicable to to our town mm-hmm. when housing is so hard to come by and we have so many short term rentals. Right. Yeah. So Rachel talked to Rihanna Medina, who's the director of the Moab Valley Multicultural Center, and she said that people who are in violation of fair housing laws often are being malicious they just don't know that these laws apply to them like landlords can't deny a housing applicant because they have kids and they also can't deny an applicant because of a history of addiction yeah that's that's super fascinating so i i imagine some laws that do apply to people here they might not even know that these laws exist or that they have these protections already right yeah yeah so the local homelessness council and mvmc are both trying to just like make sure people do know their rights and what laws apply to them. Well, that's great. That's super helpful. Great. And what's your next story? There's an event coming up on Friday, July 8th. There's going to be a Canyon Country stewardship training done by the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. That sounds fun. What, what does that include? Yeah, so participants will learn about public land monitoring. They're going to train to identify recreation impacts and collect data. And so I talked to Jeremy Lynch, who's the stewardship director at SUA. Um, and he said that trainings like these allow SUA to train locals who are already recreating outside and then you know, when you're just out on a hike or something and you have this training, you can send data back to SUA about wilderness areas and recreational impacts. In terms of health of public lands, from my understanding, more data is better. They're they're really looking for for more data. And there's some public lands even that they don't have a classification for yet right. in terms of health. Yeah, yeah. And what Sue is doing is really interesting because they are focusing on these like wilderness study areas that aren't officially designated as wilderness yet. So yeah, if you're going to go out and explore our public lands, you could also sort of become a citizen scientist and, and help monitor those right. areas you enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. So anyone who's interested in signing up for the training, you just have to apply on the SUA website. And that's just to like so that they can keep track of who's been applying. And it's like the easiest way for them to do it. And next, some new museum workshops you mentioned. Yeah. So the Moab Museum has been collecting and preserving local oral histories for years. And recently, there's been a much larger push to preserve those histories and make them more accessible online. And so this series of workshops is part of the museum's new community history program. And that program has a goal of helping community members connect with, preserve, record, and interpret Moab stories, according to Mary Langworthy, who does community relations for the museum. Awesome. So that includes residents just going out and interviewing their neighbors. Yeah, yeah. So these workshops are kind of for anyone who's interested in any oral history. Basically, the workshop just teaches people how to use recording equipment. And a lot of the recording equipment is available from the museum. And so people can just borrow this equipment and then they can use it to like interview their grandfather who has you know a favorite bedtime story and that's something that can be just kept within their family or they can record stories from people and then donate those stories back to the museum yeah that sounds really fun i may be biased radio journalism (laughs) is very fun right so the ones that are public that people want to share, are those available, I guess, on the website or at the museum? Yeah, yeah. So um, they're being organized on the museum's website. And um, Mary said that there's like a huge push to kind of 
organize those and make them really searchable. And so anything that's added to the new collection will help with that push. Cool. Are you thinking about doing it? I don't know. I'm not sure if I have a really good story yet. I mean, when you look on the website, they have stories from people who were born in 1903. Wow. Yeah. So it's really cool. Yeah. I, th- I think there's a lot of cool stories around. I think you just throw a rock and hit someone that has a really cool personal history with, with this town. Right. So the workshops will be announced on the museum's social media pages and website. Um, but the next ones are in September and October. Allie Hartford, staff writer at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel where we check in with reporters on the latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News Podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU Community Powered Radio.